0: edition July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been
1: found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico and sent to Wright Field, Ohio for
0: further inspection. Hey! From the Night Shift Cruise Studios in the D.C. metro area, this is The Statement Show. The lights are on. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Kyle Klesinger from 30 West Entertainment, and you're listening to The Statement
1: Show with Zach and Terry. Hey guys,
0: this is Bri Olson. You're listening to The Statement Show with Zach and Terry. Hey guys, it's I, Monica Dabba of Macabre Theater, and you're listening to Terry and Zach on The Statement Show. Welcome back to another edition of The Statement Show. I'm Terry James.
1: And I'm Zach Cheahy, and we're the podcast that fits in no category. Today, we have nuclear physicist and lecturer Stanton T. Freeman. He's the original civilian investigator of the Roswell Incident. He's lectured at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups in the United States. He's published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and TV programs, including Larry King. And now he's a guest on The Statement Show. Welcome, Mr. Friedman.
2: Delighted to be here.: We've had you
1: on previously before, and really nervous then, <laughs> so I've always uh, <laughs> I've admired you for a long time watching your interviews and TV programs, so Terry knows I've been quite excited about this interview. He's been quite
0: excited, and to be honest with you, I was super uh, nervous myself and, and could maybe only muster up about five words when I actually got a chance to speak with you the first time, Mr. <laughs> Friedman. but Oh, well, uh, sorry about that. It, it's been fantastic, and now, obviously before the show, we've learned your middle name. It's Terry, just like me, so I can't think of a better thing. I can't
1: either. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get right into it. I, I've always been very fascinated with the Roswell, and of course, I played the intro to a little bit of the news clip that I've always been fascinated yep. with, and um, I, I kind of wanted to get an update. Where are we today? Has any new evidence come to light, or is we, it, we pretty much stagnated on all the information that's out there right now.
2: Well... It's a mixed bag. Uh, by and large, uh, everybody who was directly involved is dead. I mean, we're talking about 1947, after all. That's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And the adults, uh, you know, would have been 15 or 20 or 25 or more. Uh, they're gone. Uh, as a matter of fact, there is a DVD, Recollections of Roswell, which has testimony from more than 20 first-hand witnesses to Roswell. Every single one of them is now deceased. So we're not
3: getting, uh,
2: as far as I know, we're not going to find any uh, original witnesses uh, coming forward. Now, it might be that somebody will find some documents that weren't known to exist or anything like that, but th- there's a lot of... Roswell has become, as you know, a kind of focal point for uh, ufology or for people who want to believe in those who don't want to believe, if you will, and so you, you really got to watch out because there are a lot of people making up baloney, and trying to sort it out is difficult. Uh, you know, it wasn't easy when I started in the mid-70s when I first heard about Roswell, and that set the tone in a way, uh, I, it was kind of strange, I was living in California, And a colleague and I were interviewing a forest ranger in California who'd had a good UFO sighting. And, you know, forest rangers get to see a lot of the sky when they're up there in the woods. And uh, well, he told us about his case. It was a good good sighting. But then he said, you really ought to talk to my mom. She had a great sighting in the Albuquerque area. And, okay, so Lydia Sleppy was her name, and I called her. And, uh, yes, uh, she had a very good sighting. And somehow in our discussion, the fact that she was at a radio station in Albuquerque, she was not a reporter. She was a, an accountant type, you know, uh, keep track of the money and all that sort of stuff. And they got a call from their Roswell affiliate telling her that, uh, they wanted to dictate a story to her. She was good at shorthand and stuff. And uh, there was quite a story going on because something had crashed and they were shipping it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And, uh, you know, he wanted to dictate the story. They, didn't, they weren't connected to the uh, newswire. You know, everybody is nowadays, but they weren't then. And so he's dictating the story and a bell rings on the machine. And a message comes over saying, stop this story she asked him, what should I do? And he says, stop it. Uh, you have to understand, New Mexico had more classified activity going on than anybody in any state in the country. Two of the three nuclear weapons labs in the United States are in New Mexico. The first uh, atomic bomb was exploded at Trinity Site in New Mexico. That's where the United States was testing the captured German V-2 rockets, White Sands Missile Range, in New Mexico. So, The government knew that if there were any spies around, the Cold War was just beginning to heat up a bit. New Mexico was a popular place, so naturally they'd want to monitor what was going on around there. So she remembered some names of some people. She discontinued her transmission. (laughs) And uh, I tracked down several people and only got so far. And No, I don't remember. And no, you know, I got nowhere. And that was Prelude. That was about 74. In 1978, I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to do a lecture at Louisiana State University. And the university, the people at the university, uh, had arranged for me to do three interviews at the local television station. And I, they took me over there, and I did the first two, and the third reporter was nowhere to be found. And the station manager's giving me coffees, looking at his watch. He knew that I had other things to do. And out of the blue, he says, you know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel. And brilliant investigator that I am. I said, who's he?
3: <laughs>
0: his
2: next sentence changed my life as it happened. I didn't know it at the time, of course. He handled wreckage of one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? You know, where that? he was being serious. There wasn't anybody else around. There was no laughter. Uh, well, what do you know about him? Well, he lives over in Homa, Louisiana. That didn't help me. I didn't know where Homa was. Uh, and he's a great guy. We're old ham radio buddies. You really ought to talk to him. Then the reporter showed up. I did the third interview. It was taken back to people at the university. It had a great response to the lecture that night. And the next day I was at the airport early and I thought, well, maybe I ought to track this down. That That, that went very well. So I called Information, you know, this was before the Internet, <laughs> uh, the old-fashioned way. called Information in Homa, Louisiana, wherever it was, uh, and I did get there later to talk to Jesse for my movie, UFOs Are Real, but that was later on. And I talked to Jesse, explained that I talked to Bill Allen at the television station, and that I'd had a, a security clearance for 14 years, was very interested in UFOs, and so he told me a story. Now, I better point out that some people say, well, why would he tell you if this was supposedly so secret and so forth? Well, (laughs) as it turned out later, and I didn't know it at the time, this picture was in newspapers around the world. He couldn't deny and say, well, I hadn't know anything to do with that. I mean, there it was, and I found it in papers later on, uh, taken in Fort Worth, Texas, where he'd gone with some of the wreckage. So he told me his story. Uh, I followed up on it. I found people in town. I I got lucky. Uh, Let's face it. I called the local newspaper. I didn't even know there was a newspaper in Roswell, New Mexico. And uh, when I talked to the newspaper, I said, uh, gee, I'd like to talk to the editor from 1947. This is in 1978. And they said, oh, he's long gone. What do you need? Well, I've got these articles because I had shared information with Bill Moore a colleague that i known in Pittsburgh, and we both lived up that way, and uh, he had a date for me. Jesse didn't remember a precise date, and so I wanted to go to the newspapers to find out more, and uh, I told Bill what I found out at the newspaper, and my big find at the
3: newspaper,
2: when I mentioned this article that I had... I said, it mentions that uh, the base public information officer, a guy named Walter Hout, Haught, his name is spelled four different ways in the newspaper articles that I had that Bill had picked up. And, uh, before I could finish the sentence, he says, oh, his wife works here. What? <laughs> What's he doing in Roswell now? We're talking 1947. It turns out he's from Chicago. He likes Roswell. He moved his family there. And, uh, but he knew lots of people. He had a base yearbook. Let me make a copy. Uh, and we found Bill and I found uh, 62 people in the next year and a half. The old-fashioned way, you know, my phone bills, his phone bills, of both of ours were <laughs> big. You know, <laughs> <kind> of, <laughs> you know, today you go to the internet and you start looking around, but you couldn't find. So uh, the first book came out in 1980. It was by Bill and Charles Berlitz. I got a percentage of the royalties. Berlitz's name was magic with publishers. You remember the Bermuda Triangle uh, book. Burlitz's and did, you know, was a, a bestseller in many countries. Burlitz is the, related to the Burlitz and the Burlitz Language School. And so uh, he, he was great at languages. He spoke 30 languages, something like
3: that. Mm-hmm.
2: So, anyway, we proceeded. Uh, their book came out in 1980. By 1986, we found uh, 92 people. My own book came out later. Uh, and so, you know, it's been a quest. I Look, I was given lectures long before I ever heard about Roswell. My first lecture was in 1967, and I first started studying UFOs in 1958 as a young nuclear physicist uh, working. I think I set a record over the years of working on canceled government-sponsored research and development <laughs> programs more than anybody else nuclear mm-hmm. airplanes, uh, fission rockets, fusion rockets, nuclear power plants for space, little companies, GE, GM, Westinghouse, Roja General Nucleonics, McDonnell Douglas. Uh, you know, and it wasn't a conscious choice. I want to be a ufologist. I enjoyed lecturing and stuff, but then I got a job that would be the finest job you could imagine for me. Um uh, I was going to work for McDonnell Douglas to figure out how flying sensors worked. Mm. What a challenge. McDonnell Douglas Astronautics. I'm driving across the country to take up uh, my new job in Santa Monica, California. i had been living in Pittsburgh where the nuclear rocket <laughs> program was going on. And uh, I heard on the radio the program that was going to pay my way was canceled.
3: Oh. <laughs> and
2: I walked in and she says, you know, we just laid off 5,000 people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they kept me for three months, but uh, I knew that I'd have to look after myself. So I got on the phone. You know, I'm a cheapskate from California. You could call back East Cheap before 8 in the morning California time. So I'd call colleges all over the place Do a big mailing, get more lectures, uh, keep going at it. And I'm still giving lectures. I'm not doing mailings anymore. <laughs> a long time ago. But uh, I, I've had a unique opportunity to investigate UFOs, but also to see what interests people. I mean, you know, I've spoken in all 50 states. I've spoken in 10 Canadian, all 10 Canadian provinces and 18 other countries, and number 19 is coming up next month, India. Uh, and so I know what interests people. I've answered, I figured, 60,000 questions over the years. I do a monthly column for the MUFON Journal, Mutual UFO Network, and... Uh, And I've been doing it for years, which I get a kick out of, but people ask me questions. And uh, I've reached, I'm not an apologist ufologist. I tell it like it is. Uh, There are four major conclusions. First, the planet's being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. In other words, some underlying 16 times, some UFOs are alien spacecraft. Most are not. I don't care about them. Most people aren't seven feet tall. As yes, the basketball coach. You'd settle for one, you know. <laughs> well, you got to focus on what's relevant. Uh, you could say a guy is a lousy hitter because two-thirds of the time he doesn't get a hit, but if he gets a hit a third of the time, he's going to get paid a lot of money. You know? Very true. It <laughs> doesn't need to be 100% of the time. The second conclusion is we're dealing with a cosmic water gate. And unlike many other people in the field, I had the good, I suppose you could say, good fortune of working under security for 14 years. I had a queue clearance working on things in the clear. And I've been to 20 document archives, some of them many times, like the Eisenhower Library, the Truman Library, the Library of Congress, Manuscript Division, stuff like that. I'm a fact-oriented guy. That's what I'm all about. Uh, So, Cosmic Watergate. Some few people in government know what's going on. Most of them don't. So what? (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's the ones who do that matter. The third conclusion is there are no good objections to the first two conclusions. And the fourth is we're doing dealing with the biggest story of the millennium. So I lay it out there just like that. And what I've found is people are ready to accept the data. I focus on five large-scale scientific studies. I, I have a rule that I learned in fifth grade when a teacher tried to give me a hard time about something. Have facts in hand before putting mouth in gear is a
3: good rule to
2: follow. <laughs> uh and so it, it's been fun, but educational. And I find that the questions people really want answered, once you've shown the data, I talk about five large-scale scientific studies, and fewer than 2% of the people have read any of them, I ask. So I know that it's something new to them, and I can back up what I say. Uh, but uh, the, the kicker here is what people really want to know is the answers to the why question. You know, why would aliens come here? Why doesn't the government tell us what it knows? Why don't they land on the White House lawn? uh, You know, take me to your leader, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. And so I've had to think about all those questions because when you're in front of an audience, you can't say, well, I'll get back to you tomorrow. You have to have an answer now. And with five books out there, uh, you know, I've got a website, www.stantonfriedman.com. you got to spell Friedman right, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, not E-I.
1: Just got and that's the nice thing about Google.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, Google will probably get you to the right one. You can find me on Google, and you can find me on the website, which lists lectures coming up and lists all my books. And people say, well, why should I buy a book from you? Well, I can give you something that Amazon can't, an autograph. I grab all my books, which I send out. And you can use PayPal. It's easy. But the idea is to spread the word, get people to come forward, think about these things. And, you know, people say, you must get an awful hard time. You come on so strong. I don't. Most people believe in flying saucers. The problem is they think most other people don't. Mm -hmm. At the end of my lectures, I frequently ask for how many people here believe they've seen what I would consider to be a flying saucer. And I like the term flying saucer better than UFO because all flying saucer UFOs. Only a few UFOs are flying saucers. Mm-hmm. You know, all great-grandfathers are men, but not all men are great-grandfathers. So I'm interested in flying saucers. I'm not interested in UFOs. Who cares? Uh, so I, I have found that people want to know more. And they – well, in, in one classroom, the professor and I rigged up. We were going to ask some questions, but we would ask the kids to vote with their eyes closed. So they wouldn't be influenced by the other kids in the room. We found out that 80% of the kids in the class thought that most people didn't believe in UFOs. When we checked that same audience with their eyes closed again, 80% did believe in UFOs. <laughs> and when I ask at the end how many have seen one, uh, and I make a little joke, you know, we don't have the CIA in, and, and uh, it just, just, I'll just count point and count how many people, I'm not asking your names or anything. So when I do that, the hands go up, and much to everybody's surprise, there's a lot of hands. Ten percent of the people believe they've seen one, which some people find astonishing. But then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? Ninety percent of the hands go down, and when people come up to my table, want me to sign a book, tell me their story, they got to tell me their observation. Uh, and I ask, uh, did you report it? No. Why not? They think I was some kind of a nut. <laughs> so the problem isn't that most people don't believe in UFOs; it's that most people don't believe other people believe in
0: UFOs. Well, I mean, no, you're you're right because it seemed like for the longest time, every time there was somebody on the news, it, it, the joke would always be it was some person from a trailer park in Kentucky or West Virginia or yeah. you know or something like that. Yeah. It was it was always it was always laughed at and never taken serious. So I, I could I could, could understand how somebody wouldn't want to report, but now how about yourself? When did you always believe in flying saucers, or, or no? Was... I I didn't have an opinion
2: about flying saucers. I I believe you should have facts before you have an opinion. Mm-hmm. But
0: mm-hmm.
2: I read the first book. I, I was very fortunate, just by accident, that I read Edward Ruppelt, Captain Retired uh, Captain Edward Ruppelt, uh, who was head of Project Blue Book in the early 1950s. And he wrote a book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. And I was ordering books from a mail-order book house. And I needed one more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. And there was his book, covered, 295. This is 1958, marked down to a dollar, which is what shipping would have been. So it wasn't going to cost me anything. And the Air Force, I was working on nuclear airplanes at the time. It was a pretty good sized program. Uh, that year we, in 1958, we spent $100 million. We employed 3,500 people, GE, aircraft, nuclear propulsion department. And, uh, 11 of those 3,500 people were engineers and scientists. So it was a good sized program. So I ordered the book, read it, I liked the Air Force. They were a co-sponsor of our program. How could I not? And I also had the thought that, gee, if these things are real, uh, maybe they're nuclear-powered, and that would certainly help our program a lot. I mean, it wasn't a small program, but big development programs cost a lot of money. They don't come easy, especially if it involves things nuclear. Uh, And I worked on more canceled such programs than anybody. (laughs) (laughs) But that was... 58, when I read the book, moved to California, read a bunch more books, and then I had my epiphany, if you want to call it that, at the University of California, (laughs) Berkeley Library. uh, I ran across a book, a report, a volume, Project Blue Book, Special Report 14. Blue Book was the name of the government group, supposedly the only one, an Air Force group, concerned with UFOs based at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And here's a book that hadn't been mentioned in any of the ten books I'd already read by that time. And packed full of uh, charts, tables, graphs, and maps. I was in data heaven. But the, the guy who put this together, uh, because it's a government report, can't be copyright, and he included the press release from when this thing was released in mid-1955. And in the press release, the Secretary of the Air Force lied through his teeth. It shocked me. Uh, I was accustomed to avoiding releasing classified information, but here's what he said. On the basis of this study, we believe no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3%, could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. That sounds very straightforward. The only trouble is I had the report and uh, the charts and tables, and you know what? The unknowns weren't 3%. They were 21.5%. <laughs> sure.
0: Com-
2: completely separate from the 9.3% that were listed as insufficient information Well. I'll tell you the truth, it made me angry. I don't like being lied to, especially by somebody at as high a level as the Secretary of the Air Force. So I became bound and determined I was going to find out what the truth was. I joined APRO and NICAP, the big UFO groups at the time. Talked about it at lunch with the, my colleagues. Uh, and then I got Frank Edwards' book, Flying Saucers, Serious Business. He was a newsman in Indianapolis, and I went to work for General Motors in Indianapolis after the programs I worked on in California were canceled. Uh, and Frank knew everybody as, as a journalist. And he sent me a copy of his book and I called him. I said, Frank, uh, I want to go public. Uh, you know everybody. Give me some names in Pittsburgh. I was a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. That ought to be good credentials in Pittsburgh, which is a big Westinghouse town. And uh, he gave me the name of the producer of a, a show with the title, believe it or not, of Contact <laughs> on the biggest station in Pittsburgh, KDKA, and uh, 50,000 watt clear channel, you know, the routine. And their their response was, don't call us, we'll call you. Well, less than a month later, he called me because somebody had canceled at the last minute and I lived in town. I wasn't far from the station could you do our show tonight at 7? This is at 6.30, please. <laughs> and I did. And that got me started. Uh, I wasn't as good at dealing with the nasty, noisy negativists then as I am now. <laughs> Somebody at work, a woman at work, had a book review club, heard me on the program, said, how about speaking to our club? Sure. So my first lecture was in her living room. And gave a lot more lectures after that. And, you know, sometimes you get lucky in the world. Uh, you know, it doesn't happen often. But I'm driving to work one of t- two times. I lived downtown, and Astronuclear Lab was out of town a bit. And Joanne uh, also lived downtown. My car was in the garage. And well, I'm telling her, gee, I'd like to speak at Carnegie Tech. Carnegie Mellon now. Uh, and. She did, did you talk to the dean i said no i talked to dr so-and-so and he wasn't interested she says stan the dean's my husband he's heard you on the radio give him a talk a call so i did and he booked the talk a few weeks later but it was during the day i know i'd have to take some time off work so he asked me the last question was uh, how much you want how about a hundred dollars I figured he'd knock me down to 50, but I'll get something for my time because I'd have to take some time apart. Sold. He bought me at 100. We had a great response at the lecture, and he was a good guy. He told me what the other people in his series were getting paid. 1,500, 1,700, 1,600. <laughs> he wrote a nice letter to the agent through whom he booked the other people, and he booked me at the Engineering Society of Detroit. For three hundred bucks in expenses. Wow. Ooh.
3: What they year were sold was sold out
2: this oh. was in sixty seven.
3: Okay. Sixty eight.
2: Yeah. Uh, we were they were sold out three weeks in advance for a thousand and eight people for dinner and a talk. And there wasn't one negative question. So I feel a number of these uh, respectable groups, I mean who could be more respectable than the Engineering Society of Detroit, you know, <laughs> and uh it was kind of funny because I spoke to a combination of American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics and the Institute of Electrical Engineers in, in Pittsburgh. They had a joint meeting and they brought me in as a speaker
3: because
2: I was going to do it for free, really, and they'd have to pay for dinner for me and my wife, you know, and with packed house, 400 people and the janitors had a, you know, kick us, kick out the people because the questions went on for so long. My boss's boss's boss was there. Uh, and when I asked the company for, uh, I'd like to do more lectures. Are there any rules? I don't want to lose my clearance. I don't want to lose my job. Uh, you know, I need some guidance here. They gave me three rules. And I mention this because there are professors who will tell you, I don't tell anybody I'm interested in this subject. The three rules were, you can say what you please on your time. You can identify yourself as a Westinghouse nuclear physicist. But we'd like you to start the lecture with uh, a statement that the views you're about to hear are mine and mine alone and not those of my employer. Who could ask for anything more? I mean, you know, that's great. Oh, I did ask for one thing more. I got a call from a colleague at Los Alamos. We both worked on nuclear rockets. Program. And he says, How about speaking to our local section of the American Nuclear Society? I said, Oh, I'd love to. He says, No, I mean, not an expense account, Stan. He's in New Mexico. I'm in Pittsburgh. Uh, Well, I don't make those decisions. I ask management. Sure. They paid for me to go from Pittsburgh to Los Alamos. And they knew what the purpose was. It wasn't technical discussions, which can hide a lot of stuff, you know. (laughs) It was to give a lecture Flying Saucers Are Real. We had 500 people. Response was great, no negative questions. So, this convinced me I had something to say that people I respected. I'm a member of the American British Society, uh, appreciated. So, I've been at it ever since, and, uh, you know, keeping busy, and finding that I have my special background helps me deal with some of the common objections. Governments can't keep secrets. Hmm. I, I've just read something recently where a guy says, you know, people put out a blog and put something on the Internet, and it's all over the place. You can't hide anything. Well, classified work doesn't get put on the Internet. Uh, I worked under security for 14 years. I know darn well you can keep secrets.
1: Well, how do you feel about the, like Snowden and, and the private who released that information to WikiLeaks? Do you ever feel like that could be a possibility down the road?
2: Well, I, I wouldn't take bets on it. Uh Let let, let me prove that secrets can be kept about UFOs. The National Security Agency, Mr. Snowden's uh, employer for a while, (laughs) uh, we went through a big rigmarole through a Freedom of Information Act legal suit and all that sort of stuff. To make a long story short, we wound up getting 156 pages of top-secret Umbra NSA UFO material. Wow! Mm-hmm. The only trouble was you could read one sentence per page. <laughs> Everything else was whited out. Wow. I, They had a list of documents, and there were a bunch from the CIA, so I went after those. Oh, I got dozens of them. They were all blocked out, except, you know, four words here, maybe five words on that page, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, people think governments can't keep secrets. That's malarkey. They can keep secrets. Uh, well, look, let me give you some examples of big secrets that were kept. The beginning of World War II, the Brits managed to break the German codes. Remember the Enigma story and all
3: that stuff? Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: There were 12,000 people at Bletchley Park in England who, all during the war, they had to intercept German military communications, decode them, and translate them. And be very careful about who got copies, because if the Germans found out we'd broken the code, they'd change it. And none of them spoke. For 25 years, 12,000 people kept their mouths shut. shut. Hmm. And that was a very important secret, very important in winning the war. It's nice to know when the other guy is sending his airplanes where and all that sort of stuff. Lockheed spent ten billion dollars on developing the stealth airplane over ten years. Classified. Not a word during that period of time. The first big plant at Oak Ridge National Laboratory to separate isotopes of uranium for the atomic bomb project, the Manhattan Project. Uh, the plant itself was over a mile long. They uh, pumped uranium, uh, and gashes form through little holes and big nickel plates and sent it back through. The U-235 is a little lighter, so it moves a lot faster, and you finally get enrichment. They were using 5% of all the electricity produced in the United States during the war to separate those isotopes in secret. Uh, And there were plenty of others. Uh, According to the Washington Post, uh, three years ago, the total military intelligence budget in the United States was $52.6 billion. That's a lot of secrets. Mm. So there there are many other examples. But I I say that for anybody out there who thinks that because there are blogs and the Internet, nobody's keeping secrets, you're wrong. And a good example of that uh, is... We got a memo in 1979, I think it was accidentally released, uh, in which uh, a a retired Air Force general by that time, but at the time he wrote the memo in 1969, he was asked, what should we do about Project Blue Book? Because it was recommended in early 1969 that it be closed. This is by the University of Colorado study. And so he was asked to tell us what we should do by his Air Force colleagues. He had nothing to do with Blue Book. Uh, He worked on the lunar excursion module. He wrote a memo, and in the memo he said, reports of UFOs which could affect national security are made in accordance with JNAP-146, or Air Force Manual 55-11, and are not part of the Blue Book system. That's an extraordinary statement, because the Air Force has been saying, ever since then as well, That Blue Book was the only thing they had going on UFOs. And two paragraphs later, he said, if we close Project Blue Book, the public won't have a place to report sightings." However, as previously noted, reports which could affect national security will continue to be investigated using the procedures established for that purpose. Well, 10 years later, I get a copy of this thing. I decide I want to talk to General Bolander. So I found him. Air Force generals are easier to find than Joe Blow. especially with a name like Carol Bolander, And I called him and said I'd had a clearance for 14 years. He was very interested in the subject. I read his memo with great interest. I said, it sounds to me like you're saying there's two separate channels of communication here, one for the important stuff, the reports that could affect national security. And I had one last week. I told him a guy told me about a saucer going down the runway at a strategic air command where nuclear weapons were stored. Now, that's, by definition, a threat to national security. And then I say, if my wife and I are walking down the street and we see a UFO big deal, happens all the time. And he agreed with me, there are separate channels of communication. Now, since that time, the big question, of course, is, so. okay, where's the good stuff going? Well, since that time, we've got some MJ-12 documents. That's a long story told in my book, Top Secret Magic, M-A-J-I-C. Uh, roll of film comes in the mail and on it, it, there's some classified documents. And It's a long story, but the important thing is, what it says is that President Truman established this group called Operation Majestic, 12 members, this is in 1947, because of Roswell. And it was accountable only to the president. And so my feeling, and if you look, the people who were listed as members of the group at the time,
3: uh,
2: six uh, military, two Army, two Navy, two Air Force, uh, Secretary of Defense, and five scientists, outstanding group of people. And there was one shocker there, which made us very wary of going public because it seemed almost unbelievable. One of the people listed as a member was a Harvard professor of astronomy who was a total debunker as far as we knew. Dr. Donald Menzel wrote three anti-UFO books. Now, everybody else we knew had high-level security clearances. Three of them had, went on to be directors of central intelligence. But what's Menzel doing here? He's a debunker. Well, make, uh, again, a long story short, I got permission from three different people. All these guys were dead, which was very convenient, you know. But I got permission from three different people. to Look at his papers at Harvard. and was totally shocked by finding that uh, he had a longer continuous association with your buddies at the NSA of anybody in the country. He told that to Jack Kennedy. And he said to Kennedy, when we are properly cleared to each other, I can tell you more about. So once we found that, I mean, a totally unexpected finding, I might add, uh, then it seems to me that the logical place where all this stuff, the good stuff went, was Operation Majestic 12. And I should point out, you know, the government owns the good equipment. I don't have my own radar set. I'm sure you guys don't. <laughs> uh you know, you don't have gun cameras on airplanes chasing UFOs, military planes, or monitoring their electromagnetic signatures and all the rest of that stuff. All that data is born classified. Uh, you know, they don't publish every week the, our best sightings of
1: unidentified mm-hmm.
2: flying objects uh, by radar and with equipment. So, uh, but
1: wouldn't you say that's because they don't want to show their weakness too? I mean, if you were the air force would you want to come out to the public and say uh there are flying saucers but by the way we can do nothing about it uh we can't catch up to them we can't stop them it shows weakness on their part well
2: certainly it does but there's uh let me give you the quick list of reasons for the Mm cover-up first is you want to figure out how the darn things work they make Mm -hmm. wonderful weapons delivery and defense systems uh they could land in a small space, take off from a small space, outmaneuver anything we got flying, fly silently. No visible external engines, no wings, no tail. Uh, and in today's world, uh, a lot of money is being spent on things military. The total military budget this year on planet Earth, which is a little hard to buy, but it's true, is a trillion dollars. Hmm. Half of that for the United States and the rest of the world, another half. So having, you set up your secret project, you got wreckage, you have all those sharp scientists working at national laboratories. You don't go to your local university and, hey, will some professor help me figure out what this stuff is? No, you, you go to the national labs and industry. Los Alamos today has like 7,000 people. Their budget, roughly $3 billion this year. That's a lot of know-how mm-hmm. at your beck and call, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the first reason you want to figure out how they work. The second reason, what if the other guy figures out how they work before you do? They're <laughs> observed all over the planet. What if they find out before you do how they work? You don't want them to know. You know. They know. You know. Weapon, counter-weapon, counter-counter-weapon. We've been playing this game since bigger spears and stronger shields went in fashion.
1: Let me ask you this then, and this is one of the things that I that I personally have kind of a theory on. I've heard this before, but would you believe that the Nazis were the first to find a UFO? And that's one of the reasons why they had such a I don't know the bravado of, of trying to attack everybody. They really thought they were superior and they had an edge on everybody. They just didn't have time. No, to I,
2: it. I've read Joe, I've read uh, Pharaoh's books, and <laughs> okay. no, I don't believe you that don't? because, okay. uh, uh, let's face it. The Germans had the best scientific establishment of anybody in the world. All important scientists from the United States went to study in Germany. Uh, it, it's true. And so, it, let, let's face it. If Hitler had figured out how these darn things work, he'd have used them. Absolutely. He didn't have a reputation for being a nice guy. <laughs> put it mildly. correct. Thinking. Correct. <laughs> So, it's why, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he quotes me in one of his books at great length, uh, much more than he should have, I would say, Uh, but no, I don't think the Nazis did it. Now, you have to, there's an important distinction here. I've worked on a number of proposals for advanced technology projects, and the artists come up with great drawings, tell you what everything's going to look like that they're going to build. We'll build you the finest nuclear rocket you can imagine, and here's what it's going to look like, and so forth and so on. There's a big difference between artist concepts and real drawings, you know, manufacturing drawings, Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you're going to make something. And uh, I think most of the stuff that people talk about the Nazis, there's no question that everybody would like to have built a a round vehicle that can move in any direction at high speed, high performance, etc., Uh, Look, the Avro card, it it didn't perform terribly well. That's the proof of the pudding. You know, you can draw pictures as easy.
1: That seemed very cartoonish. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well,
2: okay, yes, I'll I'll, I'll find that. So, But the the third reason, incidentally, for the government is uh, no government on this planet, of which I am aware anyway, wants its citizens to owe their primary allegiance to the planet instead of that individual government. Nationalism's the only game in town. Sure. And you can't say, well, we'll hold an election. Who speaks for the planet? Hey, India's got one point four billion people. I mean India's got one point two billion. China's got one point four billion. The United States has got three hundred and fifteen maybe million. Uh no, we're not gonna hold an election to decide who speaks for the planet. There's also a problem with uh well some people say, Look, Stan, uh if we figure out how flying saucers work, there goes the oil industry, there goes the car industry, there goes the aircraft industry. Economic chaos. Well, I don't, I don't believe that, frankly. Uh, the world is put up, you know, I, I don't have much sympathy for guys who uh, make devices. Oh, that the, uh, put the, the guys who built horse uh, and buggy carriages mm-hmm. out of business. You know, it got replaced by other vehicles. So new technology comes along, so it comes along. And it builds new industry. That's right. So uh, I think also, but I do think most countries don't want their citizens to owe their allegiance to the planet instead of that country. Do you?
1: No, And uh, that's why. Nobody in
2: power wants to stay, wants to lose power.
1: That's why I have a hard time with this. Every every time we see a new president coming to office, everybody says the same thing. This is the this is the one. This is the one that's going to do disclosure, and I I just don't see how. I don't think they let the president in on what's really going on. I think why should they? That.
3: He's a
2: short termer.
1: Exactly. <laughs> right. so, I mean, I
2: remember Roosevelt who got elected four times. <laughs>
1: So, but no, no more. So, see, can you, I'm a little confused here. So, is Majestic 12, is this the famous Men in Black, or is that something no. different? No, so. that's
2: something different entirely. It's an organization set up for the express purpose of uh, dealing with the best information that could affect national security. That means measurements of wreckage. It means measurements of flight behavior. Uh, intelligence about what the other guys are doing around the world. I did once talk to a guy who was at an NSA listening post, and he mentioned that UFOs were on their list of topics. Hmm. They were listening. Uh, I haven't heard Snowden really say anything about <laughs> UFOs, but you know, people don't realize how big the classified world is. Like I said, the NRO, CIA, NSA, between them, their total budget was 52. Billion dollars three years ago.
1: It's all black mm-hmm. budget too, untraceable. Yeah,
2: yeah, and so that's a lot of dough where I come from. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Do you have you heard of the Project Aurora?
2: Well, I'd heard of Aurora a long time ago. It's this high speed, high performance aircraft, mm-hmm. and there are loads of these projects that came and they go, and most of them get canceled. What people forget, I guess today's young people forget, is the Cold War. That was a big part of what went on. If you came up with an idea and were a good salesman, you could probably get the government to fund it, because it'll put us ahead of the Russians. (laughs) That's what mattered. And so the budgets were incredibly large, and loads of people working on them. Like I say, when when I was at GE, 3,500 people. And it was a development, a research development program. We never flew a nuclear-powered airplane. We flew a small reactor on board a big B-36 to put out radiation so we could make measurements around it for shielding purposes. It certainly had nothing to do with powering the airplane, <laughs> uh, despite having spent all that money. But, you know... Uh, on the topic of nuclear, I'm obviously biased. I belong to the American Nuclear Society, the American <laughs> yeah. Physical Society, and so forth. <laughs> but uh, we don't seem to want to recognize. Well, for example, we have nuclear-powered submarines that can go around the world underwater. In World War II, a submarine could stay under for a day because you need air for the diesels. Mm-hmm. If you're nuclear-powered, the first one to go around the world underwater was in 1960, the Triton, uh, all the way around the world underwater. We have nuclear powered aircraft carriers that can operate for 18 years without refueling. And that's incredible.
1: And that's just the stuff w- we see. Yeah.
2: Well, I worked on a study of fusion propulsion for deep space travel way back in believe it or not, 1962. And it certainly looked reasonable. If you want to spend the dough, you can go. That was our attitude. And fusion is what produces almost all the energy in the universe. We tend to forget that. Uh, when people say you can't get here from there, well, not on a bicycle. You know, just like you can't go around the world underwater in a diesel-powered submarine. <laughs> but <laughs> You know, you've got to my one of my mantras is that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way the future isn't an extrapolation of the past and i mentioned the nuclear power carrier because it illustrates something else that they typically carry about 75 small jet powered airplanes and the the carrier can go as I say for 18 years without refueling the airplane. What two hours if you're lucky, you know? <laughs> if it isn't flying too fast. Uh, that's technology that people don't seem to be aware. Of. The uh, you know, we just went by the planet, or maybe it's a planet, Pluto, <laughs> the Horizon mission. You know, nine and a half years to get there. Not one of the coverage that I saw, stories and articles and so forth, mentioned. That What kept that thing going is it had a, a nuclear-powered little generator, radioisotope thermoelectric generator. For nine and a half years, that powered that darn thing. Hmm. And you can't do it with solar. You're getting farther and farther from the sun, and there's less and less energy. Hmm. Uh, so nuclear is extremely important, and that leads to, so why would somebody come here? I just read an article where somebody said, well, you don't expect them to come here in... Uh, we're, we're nothing to them. It's like if we run across ants on the road, you don't bend down and say, uh, take me to the Ant Queen, please, <laughs> or Would you like a nuclear weapon now and then, you know. Sure. Uh, of course not. Uh, so, the, the whole approach here is we, we don't wanna, we, we wanna brush nuclear under the table, but fusion is what produces almost all the energy in the universe. What I'm saying is we know how to go to the stars, and therefore, we would be of great concern to the alien visitors because we're not nice guys. You know, World War II is a good example. Worst thing I ever heard from a journalist when I was going through my, you know, they would be concerned about us because, after all, in World War II, we killed 50 million of our own kind and we destroyed 1,700 cities, and she looked at me and said, well, that I don't believe that. Why not? This is a journalist from New York, no less. Uh, well, how many people do you think that killed in World War II? Well, only three or four million. Mm-hmm. Believe me, some people say 60 million. I'm a conservative. I'll say 50. You know? <laughs> but what I'm saying is from an outsider's viewpoint, we're obviously a primitive society whose major activity is tribal warfare. This year, the military budget on the planet is a trillion dollars.
0: Hmm.
2: How many kids died of starvation
0: last year? Exactly. You know,
2: yesterday uh, scares the heck out of me, and it worries me.
1: Well, uh, country's top priority. If you look at Russia, they spend more on their budget than worrying about feeding their own people. So, well,
2: sure, but uh, and we do spend more than they do. No question about it. Mm-hmm. But between. All the countries on the planet, a trillion dollars is a lot of money being spent on things military. I've got nothing against the military. Don't, don't misunderstand. I'm just saying that from an outsider viewpoint, remember, we have exploded 2,000 nuclear weapons on this planet. People look at me and say, what are you talking about? Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Trinity, and 2,000 nuclear warheads have been exploded on planet Earth. That means the aliens know that we can go if we had the dough. Mm. Uh, And I'd be worried about that. You know, the United States learned a lesson about uh, Pearl Harbor.
3: Mm.
2: Sometimes you get caught with your pants down.
3: Well, uh, yeah, you know,
0: that's actually true. You know, and and I guess that's one of the questions that I had for you as far as like, you know, someone in the know like yourself and, and regular Joes like myself and Zach. Like, as far as like the movies, uh, that have been out, I, I mean, has Hollywood <laughs> ever gotten it even close to what you, th- I mean, you know, with, with like aliens and Independence Day, Close Encounters, Men in Black, whatever, you know, do you feel that any of them would be scratching anywhere? the surface? At yeah. All. Anywhere, even sniffing the surface.
2: Well, uh, the movie that starred James Earl Jones, the UFO incident, talking about the Betty and Barney Hill case came pretty close to getting it right. Uh, and I must say the book captured by Kathleen Martin and myself, Kathleen is Betty's niece and the movie rights have been optioned and that doesn't mean the movie will be made. <laughs> you, you know that as well as I do, <laughs> but and there, and there's also an option on the book, uh, Top Secret Magic, JIC, about this MJ-12, 12, Majestic 12. And, uh, you know, whether any of these will get made before I die, I'm I'm getting kind of old. <laughs> I, I don't know. But uh, I'm hoping if we have anything to say about it, and usually you don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, my movie UFOs Are Real isn't bad, but it's a documentary. Sure. And... You know, it, I, again, my website has a list of my books and DVDs at www.stantonfriedman.com. But uh, it, it's... Hollywood isn't known for getting things accurate <laughs> on <laughs> controversial subjects. I mean, I hate to say that, guys. You know. Are you trying to
1: tell me the Avengers couldn't happen? I'm very disappointed. <laughs> no, I'm not telling you uh, that.
0: <laughs> I understand. When, when you actually go out to Roswell now, I mean, when you see all these museums and the diners and, and all, you know, all the crazy thing, Does Well, that... I
2: speak every year in Roswell? It seems Does that like. drive I've... you bananas
0: though? When you just see all the crazy, or, no. or, or do you like that? Or do you think that's pretty cool?
2: Well, I'll tell you, they've done a pretty good job at the museum. Mm-hmm. And last year and every year there's an annual festival in Roswell. And the first one was kind of incredible in uh, like 97, the 50th anniversary, uh, there were over 300 accredited newsmen there, believe it or not. Hmm. And there aren't that many there anymore. But uh, last year's festival was attended by over 7,000 people. And people, families come. They bring their kids. And so I don't mind them having costume contests and a parade where you wave at the people, you know, and stuff sure. like that. Uh, if, Roswell is in the middle of nowhere. It's hmm. 200 miles from Albuquerque, 200 miles from Amarillo, 200 miles from El Paso. People are going to go out of their way. I mean, it's not on the way to anywhere to come there and they're going to bring their kids with them. You should do things that give the family something to do. Sure. You know, so I don't mind that stuff and I think they do a pretty good job and they have a, quite a lineup of speakers. I'll be giving three lectures, I guess, this year, maybe on a panel and other prominent ufologists, if I could use that term,
3: <laughs> will be
2: there for the same purpose. And you'd be surprised. You don't get the the tin hat crowd, if you
0: will. Sure.
2: Uh, people take it seriously. They're, the exhibits have a lot of information value and people are there. Like I say, they've gone out of their way to get there. It's not like if it were in Albuquerque, it would be different. You know, zillions of people go through Albuquerque going in both directions. Oh, why don't we stop at the museum? You know, uh, To go down to Roswell, it's 200 miles from Albuquerque. <laughs> you, you got to want to do that. So it doesn't bother me. Uh, I'm not saying every conference is worth attending, but the stuff in Roswell's good. Uh, the New Fund conference is good. I spoke again at last year's in uh, California. <laughs> and
1: uh, when's the next one coming up?
2: It'll be, uh, I believe, in July. But I I look it up because the the date floats a bit every year. But it's going to be in Orlando. Okay. Uh, so you know you, you can see Disney. <laughs> hey, I hear there's mythology. a few
1: things else to do out there. Sure, sure. So uh, our time's running a little short with you, and uh, I don't want to keep you on here too much longer. We've taken up much of your time, and I just want to float a few names out there, and I want you to tell me what your quick opinion is of them. I actually just watched a uh, documentary uh, an individual put out. His name's Stephen Greer. Yes, I know Stephen. He seems Uh, very serious to me, so I'm just curious. uh, What is your take on uh, his documentary? Well,
2: I've spent some time with him. I've heard him speak. Uh, I have found that he is a charismatic sort of speaker. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, he claims he briefed the CIA director, and it turns out they were at a dinner together with other people. Uh, He's gone past the data. He made a big noise about a small little, I'll call it remnants of a body, yeah, which he said was going to be alien, and the DNA doesn't figure that out at all. I think he's gone overboard and not really understanding security and how security works. We've been at some of the same meetings, those big hearings in Washington and so forth. But uh, I am not a follower, if
1: you will. Huh. So when I say Bill Burns, I'm probably going the same route then.
2: <laughs> well, a little different with Bill. He's, <laughs> he's had a program on. He edited UFO magazine. hmm uh I wouldn't call him he, he does have a phd he's a professional writer and stuff write him above uh, steve when it comes to reliability okay.
1: for well i'm a fan of all these individuals but you know some more than others and i the way i look at it is you're kind of at the top of the hierarchy people you probably have the most credibility
2: I'm the oldest. (laughs) There you go.
1: (laughs) To me, I'm a little hurt because I feel like sometimes it's a slap in the face when you you have a belief on something. And maybe you take it overboard sometimes. Maybe you don't. But you you genuinely believe that there is something else out there. And a lot of people don't. They kind of laugh at you sometimes. And I think it's very conceited. Well, they laugh
2: out of self-defense. Yeah. They're far more. Look, I've only had 11 hecklers and over 700 lectures. And Mm -hmm. I come on very strong. Mm-hmm. You get more than that if you talk about sports, religion, or politics.
1: It's true. <laughs> well, Neil deGrasse, I saw him on, on a YouTube video, and somebody asked him about UFOs, and he the first thing he did was laugh.
2: And Well, yeah, let me tell, give you an example of his science. The proof that the government can't keep secrets is how much we know about President Clinton's genitalia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, uh, on the Peter Jennings mockumentary of uh, 2005, and He was on there saying our fastest, I guess, it was a Voyager uh, spacecraft, would take seventy thousand years to get to the nearest star if we were heading the right direction, which it isn't. He forgot to mention, oh, of course, it doesn't have a propulsion system on it; mm-hmm. it's coasting. Like you know, don't tell me the fastest way to communicate across the ocean throw a bottle in the ocean and see you know, how long it takes. So the I, I come on strong against the SETI community. Against astronomers, they don't know anything about security. Uh, Seth Shostak and I have debated on uh, coast-to-coast radio. Mm -hmm. I got 57% of the vote. He got 33%, and 10% said, I don't know who won. I debated Dr. Michael Shermer. Uh, I got 80% of the vote versus 20 for him. He didn't know anything about the subject. There are four basic rules for debunkers. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. But the public doesn't know. I'm not going to tell them. If you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's easier. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too much trouble, and nobody will know the difference anyway. So I'm perfectly happy to debate any of these guys anytime, anywhere. Uh, I would hope they would do their homework. But if they will not
0: too bad. I do. I mean, and you're right, because you'll have people say, yeah, for instance, um, I don't know aliens or time travelers from the future or something like that. You know, and and instantly somebody's going to start busting out laughing at that. But I don't know that's that. good science fiction. I'm not saying there <laughs> there's be so many pro-
1: there's so many programs on TV right now with wild theories about yeah from Bigfoot being an alien to just so many crazy things out there. You have the guy from I li- agree with you, George De- <laughs> Deco. I can't even say his name, Giorgio Decolos. Uh, i've seen him on ancient aliens he has that wild hairstyle he's very charismatic he's very entertaining but uh over the top in my opinion uh i enjoy it it's very like i said it's entertaining and i watch all this stuff but you got to take some of it with a grain of salt and like i said you're you're at the top oh, okay, of the credibility <laughs> yeah <laughs> so Well, you
0: just find it crazy because somebody can say oh yeah you know Loch Ness monster that that could be real but The possibility of somebody being abducted by an alien, that's just crazy talk right there. You know, that's just, that's insane. You know, I mean, I. That
2: could only come from somebody who hasn't studied the evidence, such as in my book, Captured, with uh,
1: Kathleen Martin. And that's, yeah, to me, personally, I've always had the belief that if you're an alien race and you're coming and you're going to study us, you're going to do exactly what we do to cattle. You're going to pick one up. You're going to tag it, put it back in the wild, and you're going to watch it for a while. Well, that's exactly what they could be doing. You know, grab somebody no, up, tag. I'm not them arguing with so, you. Um, Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I, I mean, obviously, I wanted to ask you, I have a whole slew of questions, but, I mean, well, we don't have, we're short on time. And the only other question that really had burning was, why haven't we gone back to the moon? What is your What is your opinion on that?
2: Well, you know, that's a very deep question. And, <laughs> you know, President Nixon said, well, we ran out of money uh, hey, you're going to pay the Navy guys the same whether they're looking for astronauts who come back or not. Uh, and the, the uh, boosters were already built.
3: They mm-hmm. were
2: paid for Apollo 18, 19. Uh, so the simplest answer is the alien said, stay the heck off our moon. I, I, I think...
1: I said, that's what I believe. I've been laughed at, but that's honestly what I really do believe. I
2: think it, it goes along with the notion that we're not... Uh, NASA doesn't have a lot of courage. They don't have an Admiral Rickover. I I say that because I worked on the space program in the 60s, and everybody else that I worked with agreed with We'd have a base on the moon before the end of the century. We'd be going to Mars by now, certainly. And we haven't done that. But it takes somebody who says, "This is what I want to do. This is where we're going to go." And if you don't want to go there, get off the train. Rickover was like that with the nuclear navy. The battleship boys didn't want nuclear submarines or nuclear aircraft carriers. Mm-hmm. Build us more battleships. You know, that's what we need. Uh, a failure of leadership is a is a bad thing. But I have to say that about NASA. Worst meeting I ever attended in my life. I attended a lot when I was working in the industry. <laughs> I was working for, uh, on Westinghouse on the nuclear rocket. I was out at Aerojet General, which also was building a nuclear rocket. And my counterpart on radiation shielding, that was my bag, was, hey, Stan, you want to go to a meeting? And being held by the Space Nuclear Propulsion Office of NASA, sure. So I went to the meeting. And their whole purpose of the meeting was what should we do with the nuclear rocket? We had had successful tests, you understand. Uh and they didn't know what they wanted to do with it. Well, Earth orbit, lunar orbit, maybe we should set a base up on the moon, maybe we should go to Mars, maybe this, maybe that. They hadn't if you don't have any notion, serious notion of what you want to do, you're not gonna get it done. Halfway measures won't don't count. You can't think about it, you know, you gotta do something about it. And so I would point the finger right at NASA for not having set a time gap. Now, it may have been that they were told by somebody, NSA or CIA or NRO or any of these guys, that uh, we better stay the heck off the moon. But it isn't enough to go to the moon. you got to do something when you get there.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, set up a base is one thing, for example. I, I could listen to you all day. I mean, yeah. honestly. I <laughs> yes, I could. No, right. well, you can't, because I can't talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: we really appreciate the time you've given us. And uh, real quick, uh, my wife's asked me what I want for Christmas, so uh, I want to get a couple of your books. Give me two of the top ones, uh, uh, if I'm interested in Majestic and Aliens. What are the two off your site? Well, that Top I
2: Secret like? Magic mm-hmm. and uh, Flying Saucers and Science. They're on the list, www.stantonfriedman.com.
1: And we're going to put that out as a link on uh, the podcast on our website so people can go and hit your website. Oh, great. And, and, uh, thank you. I can't say how much we've enjoyed having you on the show. And, and you're, quite, you're very entertaining to listen to. And like I said, you have, in my opinion, you're the most credible person that you could talk to in this field. And, well, thank uh, you. Really appreciate you coming on our show.
0: Okay. Have a happy holiday.
1: You too, sir. Thank,
0: thank you. That was Stanton Friedman. I love that guy. Yeah.
1: And you you could notice, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we didn't say too much in the middle there. And he's it's not somebody you want to interrupt. It's just uh, he's so knowledgeable and and very passionate about what he talks about. And I, for one, is mesmerized by what he's saying. I don't want to interrupt the man.
0: The crazy part is I've listened to other interviews and and I keep hearing them interrupt him in some crazy way. I don't grasp that concept. I I mean, literally I could. I could just listen to him talk. I mean, he's filled with so much information. Why interrupt him? I don't know. So, only, I li- yeah, exactly. Really I can interrupt, interrupt you, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, I mean, the only reason to really interrupt him, though, Zach, is like, you know, you you have an hour or whatever amount of time and you want to get like a billion questions into him because I'm sure like yourself. I I had, I don't know, 15, 20 questions that I was, you know, that I had for him and got about four, (laughs) you know, so it's just, it's insane. But I could talk to that guy for hours. He's just so awesome.
1: He's extremely knowledgeable. I mean, he really is. And and, and he kind of, and at first, you're kind of taken back by all the information this guy has. You're not stumping him. That's for sure. No, no. this is his material, and you're not going to stump him and you're not going to step him back. And that's what I like about him. He's very knowledgeable. I I can't say uh, thanks enough for him coming on. And uh, he did have a heart attack. Uh, It was on his website last in 2014, and he's really recovered. And I'm glad to see that he's uh, in better health and still out there lecturing and doing his thing. And it was just, I, I just appreciate the fact that he came on. I mean, you can't get a better guest. To talk about the subject line. Uh, really cool. In my opinion. Now, obviously I want to get other people on and get their opinions on. And and I had to cut in a couple of times near the end because that's the only way I was going to get in a couple of my questions. <laughs> and and I wanted to ask them about a few other people and I had other questions, but maybe we'll get them on again down the road. But,
0: but the just, moon question. That was good.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's always been my opinion. It's always uh you know some of the astronauts talked about that too. They talked about the fact that uh, they had seen some things and then after a while they just stopped talking about it, like they were told to be quiet. I mean, think about it. Astronauts were all military people, right? Yeah. That's because when you order them, they can't talk. It's an order. It's taken seriously. So what are you going to do? For
0: me? I I don't know. I think for me, you know, I had a couple of questions, but mine were a little bit more lighthearted. I suppose, you know, everybody knows if you listen to his interviews, he has, he like you said he's he's got that that list of things that he knows and he can talk about them and he can talk about them at nauseum. But you know, just to ask him, you know, what what actual you know movies were out that were even close, or you know, what do you really think of Roswell? You know, I, I mean, or, you know, all the museums and the diners and stuff coming out. I wanted to know those things because I want to know how he truly feels about it. You know, I mean, I know I know what he feels about the the crash site. I know what he feels about all the other things. But really, to be honest with you, there's. I think that you and I have always tried to delve a little bit in a more personal level. Sure. I
1: mean, we didn't ask him what his favorite color was. And we didn't (laughs) ask him, you know, hey, what's your favorite hamburger? And I, I... Obviously, people don't want to hear that from somebody with this kind of expertise. I mean, mm-hmm. you want to hear his stories. You want to. This is what he does. This is this is his. You actually
0: line. heard us asking questions in this. Podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I was ner- like, I said, uh, I was a little
1: nervous talking to him because this is somebody I've looked up to and somebody I've enjoyed listening to over the years, and it's like listening to one of the people you enjoy.
0: If you mean like your hands were sweaty and you didn't know. Exactly <laughs> no, well, not that quite. No, no, but sure, you were. Yeah,
1: I do want to mention that uh, Mike Mills of uh, at Mike five zero four Saints. he has a uh, wrestling podcast and uh, he just wanted to tell Stan that he really does love his work so I wanted to throw that out there um, since he went ahead and made a comment and I wanted to throw that out there so Mike Mills uh, if you guys ever listen take a listen to his uh, pro wrestling podcast and he enjoys Stan's work Top Secret Magic is written by Stanton Friedman and there's another book I kind of looked at I thought looked good was Crash at Corona and one of the two of the DVDs I was looking at Recollections of Roswell and Are Flying Saucers Real? So, he has a lot of books and papers on his website. So, and not,
0: and not only that, but when you get your book, it's going to be autographed. I mean, yeah, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm on.
1: definitely going to get one. Obviously, it's Christmas time, so I'm going to ask my wife, you know, I'll give her that as an idea. And sure, because uh, if you're going to get one of these books, you want to get one. And like you said, he's not, a, he's, he's not, he's, he's over 80 years old. You want to get a signed book. It's at stantonfreeman.com. Now, if you're anything like me and you can't spell, Uh, Just hit Google. You'll find it. You'll get to it. Go to a shop on the store. PayPal is the number one credit card accepting process online. It's trustworthy. He doesn't get your credit card information. Nobody gets it. PayPal gets it. They are the online bank to trust. So if you're going to do it, go to his website. Go through PayPal. Order some books. Order some DVDs. It's a great subject matter.
0: And Um, if you can't figure out how to spell his name, go to thestatementshow.com. Oh, yeah. I We're going to have the link. Well, you're going to go to
1: statementshow.com anyway, because how else are you going to listen to the podcast? <laughs> except for like if you're going to go on iTunes. And you can go to iTunes, The Statement. Not Statement Show. It's The Statement, because that's really right. what it is. is The Statement. And Staten Freeman made his statement. So.
0: But our but our website is much better.
1: Oh, absolutely. So you're going to go to www.thestatementshow.com. That's mm-hmm. thestatementshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Statement Show and subscribe to us. Leave a comment if you want. At uh, on iTunes there at the statement, and we're on YouTube as well. The statement show. That's assuming if uh, Terry ever gets the show uploaded. Mm. Yeah,
0: this one, yes.
1: Yeah, so I'm gonna bring that up again. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh man, so uh, I had a like I said, I had a great time.
0: Yeah, amazing guy.
1: Again, triple do For statement part three. Oh, huh? <laughs> well, we we can try um let's do but it I, I know he's out there like i'm gonna tell you what i'd like to go see him live
0: i'd like to have his just will to want to get out there and do things oh okay. oh my god i'm too lazy to do it
1: <laughs> he's 80 years old he's still out there <laughs> I'm so, i mean he might be older than 80 but i know he's over 80 so and he's still out there running circles around us young people very opinionated very knowledgeable the great stan freeman Ufologist, researcher, lecturer, author, editor, filmographer, traveler, you know, all around world. So, uh, the, uh, go to, uh, thestatementshow.com and follow us on uh, Twitter at The Statement Show and iTunes, The Statement. And you can look us up on YouTube, uh, The Statement Show. And, uh, there it is. So, uh, I think we've, uh, Put the nail in the coffin, another show here. So, uh, I think that's the end. You got anything else there, James?
0: I actually do not. No, no, I'm all talked out. No more questions, <laughs>
1: no more talk. He didn't talk, <laughs> he did most of the talking. <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> all right, David Show listeners, the lights are out.
0: See you. <laughs>
2: I mean, I hate to say that kind, you know. Are you trying to
1: tell me the Avengers couldn't happen? I'm very <laughs> No, I'm not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> flying saucer
2: better than you opposed. So,
3: all flying saucer you opposed, only a few you opposed your flying saucer.